new threats from countries like China, North Korea, Russia, and others in outer space, cyberspace, and maritime domains have really led Japan to continue to try to uphold the order and to um, support it whenever possible, but also to seek ways to hedge, basically by turning its traditional technological and diplomatic tools to new purposes. This is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Ong. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region. Our goal is to help our listeners better understand Asia and reach informed judgments. In this episode, I interviewed Dr. Christy Gavella to discuss U.S.-Japan cooperation in the global commons. What is the global commons? Why is it becoming more crowded? And what unique opportunities and challenges does the global commons present to the United States and Japan? Dr. Govella provides answers to these questions and more in this episode about this increasingly competitive space. Dr. Christy Govella is well positioned to address these issues. She is a researcher and teacher, serving as an assistant professor of Asian studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She specializes in comparative politics and international relations in the Asia-Pacific region. And she recently authored an article on U.S.-Japan cooperation in the global commons as part of her fellowship with the National Asia Research Program. For more on her bio, be sure to check out the show notes linked to this podcast. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. Well, Dr. Christy Gavella, thanks so much for joining our show. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off, um, you've got a wide-ranging career, but how did you first get interested in Asian studies and Japanese politics? Well, that's a long story, but the journey began with a rather arbitrary decision to study Japanese language in high school. So as someone of Asian descent, I'm actually half Filipino and half Italian. Um, The idea of studying an Asian language really appealed to me, and that was really my first meaningful exposure to Japan. I didn't know much about it before that. Um, So when I got to the University of Washington as an undergraduate, I decided to study political science. And then when I took my first class on Japanese politics, I kind of had this eureka moment and I felt that I had found a fusion of interests that could really keep me motivated and intrigued for a lifetime. Because there were so many different angles to Japan's story of political development and economic development, and in them I really saw a microcosm of the issues that Asian countries would later face and still face today, Uh, many countries face them around the world. So basically, I continued studying Japanese, and I really wanted to understand Japan from every angle. So I took Japan-related classes, not only in politics, but history, economics, sociology, anthropology, linguistics, pretty much everything. And then after college, I moved uh, to Japan to teach English on the JET program. And eventually, I decided to return and start a PhD in political science, uh, focusing on international relations in Asia broadly. But I've always maintained a strong interest in Japan. And I've spent a number of years in Japan uh, doing research, collecting data, interviewing government officials and policymakers. And so that's always been a strong core to my research. So it seems you have a wide breadth of interest topics. A lot of it does revolve around Japan. And one of the specific angles you've been looking recently is on the Japan-U.S. relationship in the global commons. And it seems like as we're in the midst still of a pandemic, um, people are becoming more aware of how connected we are and how connected everything is. It seems the global commons is one of those areas where there are increasing number of actors and stakes. 
Um, but first, let's just start off. Can you explain to us uh, what are the main domains of the Global Commons and why are they relevant to our listeners today? So the Global Commons are areas that are beyond the sovereign jurisdiction of any state. So in essence, they're domains that no one state controls, but on which all states rely. So according to international law, there are four global commons, the high seas, the atmosphere, outer space, and Antarctica. However, other domains such as cyberspace are also sometimes discussed as global commons. So in my work, I focus on comparing the outer space, cyberspace, and maritime domains, because I feel like there are interesting parallels in the ways that the dynamics in these domains are developing. And these are usually um, examined in isolation for a number of reasons, but it's clear that all three domains are really becoming increasingly crowded, competitive, and contested. Why are the global commons um, relevant? Well, basically the stability of the international order and the prosperity of the global economy really depend on reliable and unhindered access to the global commons. These domains enable a lot of the things that we use in our everyday lives. For example, a huge portion of global trade, including vital energy supplies, goes through the maritime domain. And then when you think about things like communication networks, satellite imagery, and GPS, those really rely heavily on space. And of course, we've all come to rely on the cyber domain for e-commerce and communication and other functions, especially during COVID-19. So, of course, in addition to this, the global commons have an important strategic function in international relations um, with very strong ties to national security. So if you think about the foundations of U.S. hegemony, command of the commons really enabled the U.S. to access most of the planet and to you know, project and really shape the international order in a lot of ways. So the global commons are really quite relevant, whether it's to state actors or to individuals. It seems of all the factors that you identified, it seems that the global commons has always been important, but why, why does it seem that it's becoming more contested and more competitive these days? Well, some of that's due to the advances in and diffusion of technology. You know, for most of history, um, these domains were really unclaimed, largely because states couldn't access them or utilize them. However, advances in technology um, really have led to an increasing number of actors becoming active in the commons, particularly after the end of the Cold War. I had a short piece published last year about this. Um, so this is no longer a case of just great powers like the US and the Soviet Union dominating the commons. Instead, there are new challengers like China, sophisticated middle powers like Japan, and a host of emerging powers who are really out there you know, developing more sophisticated capabilities. So, you know, on one hand, this is good because these domains are um, open to a greater number of actors than ever before. So people might say that they're becoming democratized or perhaps more neutrally pluralized. But on the other hand, it means that there's a greater number of actors um, who have, you know, a more diverse set of preferences and less agreement about how to behave in these spaces. So that's a significant challenge and it can lead to competition. So let's double click on the on the challenge front. So given the, the increasing number of actors, um, what are some of the special challenges that you've seen arise from the global commons? I think there are a few different things. Um, one is that there are definitely specific types of governance challenge due to the nature of the commons. Um, two is this kind of increasing competitiveness that I just mentioned. And three is the fact that this competitiveness really can feed into the logic of a security dilemma, which can be quite threatening in many ways. 
So, you know, just to briefly mention the governance challenges, um, I mentioned that no state claims sovereignty over the global commons, but they need to be accessible to all. So this is really a challenge because states have to come to agreements about how these domains and the resources should be used to avoid conflict, to permit access, and in some cases to enable cooperation so that states can actually get um, you know, what is potentially available in the commons. But it's really difficult. Uh, many of the resources of these commons have characteristics of public goods, and the management is plagued with a lot of collective action problems like we see in the international system more generally. So when you look at the governance of these areas, they're facilitated by, you know, a number of issue-specific regimes that have developed over a long period of time in the case of the maritime domain, centuries actually. And in cyberspace, it's still kind of the Wild West. So we've only really had a few decades of trying to govern it or figure out what is, um, you know, core to its central set of dynamics. Um, the second challenge, I think, is this increasing crowdedness and competitiveness. So just to underscore that, you know, um, the entry of new actors by itself can be threatening for states who have been operating in a domain for a long period of time. It can make them wonder if they need to engage or in increase their engagement. Um, it can also create management problems as, you know, for example, in um, the maritime domain, you have simply the potential for more types of collisions or safety issues that result when you have more um, actors operating. And then the third thing I would underline is that, you know, these kinds of um, crowdedness and uh, competitive dynamics can feed into security dilemma, the logic. So, um, you know, many of the technologies that have allowed states to become more engaged in the commons are difficult to distinguish in terms of whether they're offensive or defensive. Um, for example, in outer space, there's a lot of dual use technology where the civil applications and the military applications can't be easily separated. So the increasing technological sophistication of one state can be perceived to decrease the security of other states around it, even if it's not trying to change the status quo. It's really hard to signal that defensive intention in this kind of an anarchic environment um, where there's a lot of uncertainty and um, potentially mistrust. So um, in some cases, it is true that countries um, like China are actually trying to change the status quo. So, you know, those developments do also generate concern and an impulse towards competition as countries seek to protect themselves and their interests in these areas. So it seems that, that China has grown in economic strength um, and material strength across a lot of indicators in the past couple of decades. Um, what have they been doing in terms of the global common space and why do you think those developments are significant? So the rise of China in the global commons has fundamentally changed the power distribution in these domains and challenged its norms. Um, the maritime, outer space, and cyber domains were all characterized by American preeminence during the Cold War, but that's been gradually eroding. So while the U.S. is still the most powerful country in each domain, its relative power has decreased over time, and China has been the largest single driver of that. If we look at details, China has been quite strategic in developing its capabilities in each of these domains, making really phenomenal strides in the last few decades. Um, in the maritime domain, the Chinese Navy has really rapidly expanded and modernized over the last few decades. The Chinese program in space has also advanced rapidly over this period. Um, there were a number of milestones in the 2000s, like China's uh, first uh, manned space mission in 2003, its direct anti-satellite weapons exercise in 2007. And then more recently, China's done things like land a probe on the far side of the moon. So it's really come a very long way. 
And then in the cyber arena, China is also home to one of the world's most active cyber operations programs. So, you know, China has been incredibly busy on this front and it really has um, quite fundamentally changed uh, the dynamics of global commons. And then, you know, aside from the capabilities, there are also the norms to consider. So China has also challenged norms about these domains. Um, the most well-known example may be in the maritime domain, where South China Sea has been, you know, the site of a lot of land reclamation from China. And China has engaged with conflict with other climate countries in ways that challenge the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Um, China also tends to frame its outer space operations in ways that are linked to its national security, which is sometimes at odds with other types of goals in outer space that revolve more around civilian cooperation. And China has very different views on appropriate use and governance of the Internet and cyberspace than the U.S., Europe, or um, other democratic countries. So really, if we think about the norms, China has been pushing those boundaries and challenging them in ways that have exposed weaknesses in some cases and, you know, really challenged their governance. So it seems that China's relative power has been increasing. And at the same time, it's also been trying to um, reshape some of the existing global norms. Uh, which countries have been most affected by these developments? Many countries have been affected by these developments. So I think that uh, the United States certainly feels quite keenly the effects of China's rise in the global commons. Uh, and also countries that are in China's neighborhood, since they essentially have front row seats for the rise of China in these domains. Um, so as Chinese capabilities have grown, the U.S. as well as, um, you know, more sophisticated powers in the global commons like Japan, as well as emerging powers, have all felt the need to increase their capabilities to keep up with China, to hedge against perceived risk and uncertainty. So this is um, sort of how that competitive set of dynamics began intensifying in these domains. So as I mentioned, we've seen um, the expansion of Chinese capabilities, and we've also seen the expansion of navies and upgrades in naval technology in countries around the Indo-Pacific region, for example. And many countries are developing increasingly sophisticated outer space and cyber programs as well. So this isn't all being driven by the rise of China. There are a lot of different um, challenges in these different arenas. Um, for example, in cyber, we also see Russia and North Korea as significant actors. Um, but, you know, China is one important component. And a lot of work has, um, my work has focused on Japan, which has really come to perceive these challenges and try to formulate ways to respond to them. So let's dig further on that. So how has, how does Japan perceive these challenges and what are they doing at this point? So, um, again, to be clear, the rise of China is not the only factor driving um, these responses in the global commons from Japan and other countries. Um, but it's interesting to look at the changes that have occurred, and you really do see interesting parallels across all of the domains. So um, in some of my research, I argue that Japan's policy towards the global commons after World War II was generally to uphold the liberal international order based on rule of law. And, um, you know, that was very much consistent with a typical middle, middle power approach. However, uh, new threats from countries like China, North Korea, Russia, and others in outer space, cyberspace, and maritime domains have really led Japan to continue to try to uphold the order and to um, support it whenever possible, but also to seek ways to hedge, basically by turning its traditional technological and diplomatic tools to new purposes. 
So, for example, in outer space, um, Japan has taken an increasingly militarized approach to its dual-use technologies, pursuing things like launch systems, different kinds of communication and intelligence satellites, and counter-space capabilities that really elevate its overall capacity. Um, in the maritime domain, um, Japan has expanded the scope of how it can use economic tools like its official development assistance for security purposes, and it's engaged in defense capacity building efforts with countries that are feeling challenged by China in Southeast Asia, for example. And, um, you know, across the board in these domains, Japan has sought to link the global commons to security by integrating them more strongly into the U.S.-Japan alliance. So we've seen more um, talk and action around integrating outer space and cyberspace into U.S.-Japan alliance cooperation, for example. And we've also seen Japan give um, incrementally more control over these domains to its self-defense forces. So these are really interesting changes over time, and we do see them um, across all the domains in slightly different timescales. It seems that both the drivers of the, the changes come from multiple variables, and at the same time, the impact of those changes, right, um, also affect uh, have multiple impacts. And so then if we look at the other column of the U.S.-Japan alliance, how the, you mentioned that the United States feels China's rise quite keenly in the global commons. Um, what's the United States uh, basic approach at this point? Well, the U.S. has a multifaceted approach for sure. Um, first of all, you know, the U.S. continues to be the most powerful country in these domains. So a key response has been to maintain and to selectively strengthen its capabilities in these domains, and in some cases to renew its attention to programs. So we've seen some uh, increased focus, for example, recently on outer space due to Chinese activities and renewed U.S. interest in the moon, for example. Um, the U.S. also emphasizes working with allies and partners in these domains, um, and this is, you know, of course, a natural fit for countries like Japan. Um, I would argue that this needs to be even emphasized more in light of the growing number of state and non-state actors involved in the commons. Um, the U.S. can't make policy in these domains on its own, even as powerful as it is. It never could, even during the Cold War, so uh, the situation is even more complex now. And um, the U.S. has more potential partners to work with, but these may not be the usual suspects. So, you know, that may involve, um, you know, some more difficult conversations or more persuasion, perhaps, um, necessary to convince countries that they, too, see the benefits of the global commons in the same way that the U.S. does. Um, and, of course, we've seen in recent years uh, stronger U.S. statements and actions that are intended to signal that the U.S. is um, really stepping up to new threats. Um, so, for example, in cyber, we've seen this concept of defending forward that appeared in the 2018 Department of Defense cyber strategy, which basically signaled that the U.S. would move beyond deterrence to a more proactive, perhaps preemptive approach to cybersecurity. And this is in response to uh, not just China, but also notably threats from Russia that have come in the cyber realm in recent years. So um, we've also seen, you know, a lot of statements continuously about developments in the South China Sea, but we've seen some strengthening of that recently. For example, the State Department released a statement just this month about Chinese actions in the South China Sea, stating that um, Chinese claims were illegal and supporting the findings of the tribunal ruling in favor of the Philippines in 2016, which is a bit stronger language than we have seen in the past. Um, so we do see these, you know, stronger statements. Um, in some cases, 
a more assertive posture isn't always productive because it tends to exacerbate the competitive tone that's already been set, um, usually by China in these domains. So, uh, you know, sometimes it isn't as productive when the U.S. responds in kind, particularly with very strong statements about rivalry or, you know, the need to, to counter Chinese actions. So that can exacerbate in some cases this kind of escalating um, dynamic. But, you know, it's a mix of trying to um, maintain capabilities, work with partners, and then also, um, you know, strengthen positions where necessary. So when we think about the broad number of options that um, you've identified and countries can move forward with, you know, if we take a step back and just, you know, narrow the selection to the United States, Japan, China, what are some of their natural strengths and weaknesses when it comes to promoting their version of the, um, their norms in the global commons? That's an interesting question. So the U.S., of course, has many strengths. Um, you can probably break down the U.S., China, and Japan sort of as the U.S. being the dominant status quo power, China being the rising power, and Japan being somewhere in the middle with um, sophisticated capabilities, but a more uh, moderate set of ambitions and goals. So in the U.S. case, um, the U.S., as I mentioned, is the most dominant country in these domains. It has superior capabilities. It has a huge economy. And traditionally, it's played a very strong leadership role in shaping these domains. Um, in terms of weaknesses, um, the fact that the U.S. is the status quo power means that it's often been stuck reacting to Chinese actions. And China has you know, kept the U.S. sort of on its back foot as it's um, done different kinds of things in the maritime domain, for example, that have basically presented sets of uh, fates accompli to the U.S., um, which has been kind of forced to accept them. So um, this reactive posture is difficult for a country that is in the dominant position. The U.S., of course, has a um, strong economy, but it's been under budget pressure um, in many of these domains for a long time. Um, so it doesn't have unlimited resources. And of course, in um, current times, there are many questions about spending and resources due to COVID-19. And during the Trump administration, um, you know, the U.S. has turned somewhat away from international leadership in um, some aspects, focusing more on domestic priorities. So um, it, there is a perception that it has been distracted from developments in the commons. And in terms of China, it's the rising power. So it has, you know, increasing capabilities to dominate its own periphery. It can't do everything, but, you know, it has selectively chosen um, capabilities and assets that allow it to achieve its strategic goals. And it tends to have a lot of clarity about that. But in terms of weaknesses, you know, China is still not as powerful as the U.S. It has a very set of a very complicated set of domestic um, concerns that it needs to attend to. And increasingly, China seems to be alienating other countries with its aggressiveness in these domains. And I think the latter is um, something that really is a weakness and will continue to be one in the future. Even in the last few months, we've seen you know, escalation of Chinese actions in the maritime domain. And um, these have been really taken to be threatening by other countries and presented a very negative sense of you know, what the Chinese vision for these spaces looks like. Um, in the case of Japan, you know, it's sort of in a middle position. It certainly has very sophisticated capabilities in the maritime domain, in the outer space domain, a little bit more moderate in the cyber domain. Um, but, you know, it's a serious player in all of them. 
Um, Japan has a lot of diplomatic resources, technological resources. It has a strong relationship with the U.S., which it is very comfortable, um, you know, leveraging. And Japan is largely on the same page with international norms, so it has that kind of legitimacy in most of its actions. Um, so middle powers like Japan can be good coalition builders. You know, they can be um, the countries that others are not as worried about and more willing to work with. Um, and so that is a strength of Japan. Um, in terms of its weakness, um, Japan is not as powerful simply as the U.S. or um, as ambitious with its goals or resources as China. And so it needs partners to make things happen. Um, but all of these countries really do. Um, Japan sometimes also gets hamstrung by historical um, disputes and disagreements related to its actions during World War II that really, you know, sometimes and unfortunately inhibit its ability to work with countries like South Korea. So, um, you know, sometimes we do see that as well. But, you know, Japan certainly has, as China and uh, the U.S. do, you know, a mix of strengths and weaknesses. No country can do everything in the commons. Um, they all need, you know, cooperation with others. That's a terrific and incisive analysis uh, on the rundown of the strengths and weaknesses of, of those three countries. So if we take the United States and Japan, um, you mentioned that all countries need to work across partnerships to get things done. Um, but when it comes to the U.S.-Japan alliance, what are some ways that they could cooperate uh, to push forward on a positive plan for uh, good governance in the, in the global commons? Well, that is the key question looking forward. Um, so part of promoting good governance is certainly continuing to adhere to international norms and rules and offering support to existing regimes, despite the temptation to um, divert your course of action from those you know, well-established norms. Um, but it's also clear that countries like the US and Japan need to renew their attention to strengthening these regimes, you know, or particularly in the case of cyberspace, building a governance regime that really works. Um, so the U.S. and Japan have been doing things on this front, certainly, um, continuously, but they can and should continue to do more. And it's increasingly difficult due to the diversity of actors involved. So this means that Japan and the U.S. certainly need to strengthen cooperation with each other, which comes you know, a little bit more easily in some senses because they have similar goals and similar perceived threats. Um, you know, it doesn't mean it's easy because integrating things like outer space and cyberspace into the U.S.-Japan alliance um, can be quite challenging. Um, they have very different capacities, very different levels. There are challenges with information sharing, et cetera. So even between the U.S. and Japan, it's challenging. But then both the U.S. and Japan need to, you know, go about persuading other countries um, that they, too, will benefit from maintaining the stability and accessibility of the global commons. So um, this is really key because it can't just be about um, U.S.-Japan cooperation, although that's very important. Um, in, the in the absence of more effective global governance, we're likely to see further trends towards militarization and securitization of the commons in ways that, you know, really do threaten their um, mutual use by all countries and the goals of the U.S. and Japan uh, specifically. So it's perfectly reasonable for countries to seek ways to protect themselves if they feel like they're threatened in these domains and the existing governance is not being followed or it's simply too weak. So, you know, the U.S. and Japan can do a lot bilaterally and also um, globally in co cooperation with these other countries to find new ways to regulate and govern these domains. Um, the specifics are very important and there are no clear answers to that, but it's certainly true that the U.S. and Japan should be at the forefront of that. So it seems that nations 
are driving a lot of the development in the global commons. At the same time, you also mentioned there's increasing diversity of actors that are, uh, or non-state actors that are uh, beginning to make an impact in this space. So there's been a lot of news, a lot of attention recently about uh, the multiple launches by SpaceX. I'm wondering how might privatizing, privatizing space affect this increasing, increasingly crowded area of outer space? Commercial entities have always been an important part of the economic activity in space, um, but I think an interesting change that we're seeing with companies like SpaceX is that in the past, the commercial entities that we saw were um, more closely tied to governments, so there was more coordination, um, there were more stable expectations. So these newer companies are sort of a different breed and you know have their own goals that are a little bit different from the more traditional establishment. So the advances by SpaceX and other more recent entrants are really interesting. And they're certainly part of the trend I discussed earlier of um, outer space becoming increasingly crowded and increasingly diverse. So it's not only a greater diversity of state actors, there are also new non-state actors. Um, so I think that these private actors present exciting opportunities for, you know, interesting new developments in space, but they also present new challenges related to regulating their activities and their assets that they put in outer space. So for example, some of the concerns we've seen about SpaceX are concerns about um, collisions of SpaceX satellites with other objects in space, particularly because the SpaceX constellation can potentially involve up to 42,000 satellites um, in the future. So that's just an enormous number of objects to put into space and um, to have to work around for folks who already have assets up there. Um, other concerns have been that the brightness of these satellites inhibits um, astronomical research It inhibits, you know, viewing objects from Earth, for example, which is certainly a concern and very much um, touches on some of the characteristics of the commons where really, you know, use of the commons should be available to all. And so if, you know, certain actors um, you know, end up dominating the space, then it can, in fact, detract from the usage of others. And also there's a perpetual concern in outer space about space debris and space junk. Um, this is actually one of the largest threats in outer space. And it's a threat that basically all uh, countries and all actors up there share. So um, when SpaceX is potentially sending tens of thousands of items into space, you know, it raises questions about um, what will happen to these? Will they, you know, fall out of orbit as they're supposed to in the future as time goes on? Or will they end up contributing to a problem that is already very concerning? And cleaning up space debris and space junk is not an easy problem to solve. There are a lot of questions about whose responsibility that is and who has the right to do so. Um, so, you know, this, this one example touches on a lot of the different dynamics that we see in the global commons and um, the challenges that governance regimes face. So really, the governance regime that we need to deal with this has to be more agile in dealing with new private actors and has to um, account for a, a greater diversity of potential goals in order to make space um, reliably usable in the future. It seems that you've taken your very thorough and your methodological approach of looking at an issue from every angle um, to this issue. And I think we've greatly benefited in this conversation. Would you be okay with us asking a set of rapid fire questions? Sure. The questions are short. The answers can be longer, but at least the questions are shorter. Um, but first, uh, is there a, a youth um, 
followed U.S.-Japan policy issues for a long time throughout your career. Uh, is there one book, perhaps, above others that you've gifted the most to others? Oh, that's a really difficult question. Um, there are a lot of great books on the U.S.-Japan relationship um, from economics, from security, et cetera. I haven't gifted one to more than others because I think, um, you know, readers' interests differ widely. But to pick on a couple of recent ones that I could maybe recommend, um, I think for a broad and accessible look at the U.S.-Japan relationship through a wide span of history, ranging from the Meiji period to the early years of the Trump administration, um, Kenneth Pyle's Japan in the American Century is a good read, and it's very accessible. Um, I also enjoyed uh, Sheila Smith's recent book, Japan Rearmed, and that focuses more on changing security policy within Japan, but it also certainly has a lot to say about the U.S.-Japan relationship. So, you know, those are two that have been published in the last few years that would serve as a good introduction with really um, also deep analysis of the U.S.-Japan relationship. Wonderful. So then we've identified multiple domains in the global commons. Which of, because um, it could be up to the four, which of the four do you think will be most important uh, for, for U.S.-Japan relations, um, let's say over the course of a year, over the next year? I'm going to cheat and I'm going to pick two because I think we're likely to see developments in both the cyber and maritime domains in the near future. In the case of cyberspace, um, my answer is really related to COVID-19, which I think has increased vulnerability to cyber attacks. So as you know, a lot of individuals, governments, and other organizations have been forced to rely heavily on internet technology for their operations, it's really opened them up to more vulnerability. It's an interesting paradox with cyber that the more advanced a country is in terms of information infrastructure, the more vulnerable it is to cyber attack. So I think if this situation continues, um, you know, this will become a bigger issue in the next few months. And so it's very, very timely. Um, in the maritime domain, though, I think we've seen increasing incursions and erosion of norms just in the last few months, and I expect that this will continue um, over the next year, and it's certainly of great concern to the U.S. and Japan, as well as other countries. So even looking at, you know, the month of April, um, we saw, you know, Chinese, uh, Chinese ship uh, ramming and sinking a Vietnamese boat, a Chinese survey ship in Malaysia's EZ, and then um, a bunch of announcements uh, from China about, for example, releasing names for geographic goal features in the South China Sea. So, um, you know, those developments have also been paralleled to some extent in the East China Sea, where um, Japan and China have a dispute over the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands. So I think that um, there's a lot of attention right now on the maritime domain, um, and we've seen responses from ASEAN and the U.S. recently as well. And I expect that this will continue to develop. Um, it's interesting that this has accelerated, it seems, um, you know, during COVID-19, many countries thinking that, you know, China has sort of used this distraction as an opportunity to push ahead some of its activities. So I think that maritime as well as cyber will be areas to watch in the coming months. So you remember being a student at one point. Um, you teach students now. I'm sure you mentor many of them. Um, what advice would you give to a, a young graduate student who's interested in pursuing the study of, let's say, either U.S.-Japan relations or the global commons more generally? Well, it's tough to be a graduate student. I certainly remember that. But um, my advice 
would be that in addition to mastering the field-specific knowledge that new students are bombarded with upon entering graduate school, I would encourage them to, as much as possible, think broadly about their topics and to absorb as much knowledge from different sources as possible. And I think this is reflected in, you know, my own background and my own training. But often, you know, looking at really important issues means, for example, bridging the gap between academia and policy or becoming well-versed in fields that are not, you know, officially your own or not super familiar to you. But I think it's growing increasingly obvious that the world today is complex and the problems that we encounter do not respect the boundaries of academia and policy or the boundaries of specific fields. So if you want to understand, you know, the most urgent and pressing problems in the global commons or in U.S.-Japan relations or even in international relations more generally, you have to be able to see and understand the intersections between things like economics and security or technology and politics. And um, these intersections and these connections are what is increasingly important for policy today. And, you know, in terms of scholarly work, I think they're also ones that yield some of the most interesting scholarly insights. So to this extent that's possible for graduate students, you know, as you master your own field, try to read broadly and talk broadly to others who are interested in issues so that you're able to formulate, you know, uh, the kinds of questions and answers that really address the questions that are most pressing today. Yeah, it seems really that that, that intersection of seeing how maybe your specialized issue area overlaps with all these other issues, that's, that's the place where original research and thinking happens. And so thank you so much for bringing these big ideas um, into a concise, um, uh, uh, very compelling discussion about the global commons, why it matters uh, to us, why it matters to the U.S.-Japan relations, uh, why it matters in the context of the U.S.-China strategic competition. Uh, we've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have as well. And if they've got any feedback or questions, they can uh, write to us at our social media handles. So, Dr. Christy Cabello, thanks so much for your time in this wide-ranging conversation. Thank you so much. This podcast was produced by Simone McInnes. Asia Insight theme music is by Laura Schwartz of Bellwether Bayou. Website development was led by Sandra Ward. We want to thank our supporter, the United States Japan Foundation, for making this episode possible. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.